you're going to want Bibles in your hands um, this morning. So if you don't have a Bible with you, just raise a paw and one of the gents from uh, the back will bring one to you. But we're going to be um, uh, deeply uh, wading into the Old Testament this morning and you'll want to have Bibles in front of you to help you uh, stay on track here. So welcome uh, to Crossroads. Um, Today we're uh, continuing our priest series following, do you remember that priesthood train that we talked about in the, uh, the first sermon, uh, down the Genesis to Revelation mainline, uh, trying to get our heads and hearts around uh, the many rich ways in which the priesthood of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus in the new. I hope that we're all going to find this a, a rich and uh, challenging experience. We've arrived now at, uh, I guess, uh, what you might call the priesthood proper So far we've seen some beautiful but shadowy pictures, haven't we, of uh, what priesthood looks like in the Old Testament with Adam. We saw this kind of fleeting vision that kind of emerged out of the static for a minute and then just disappeared uh, of what God's plan for priesthood was before the fall. A vision that captured actually what all of us were originally intended to be. Something which is intended to give us meaning and purpose in life. Something which God's heart is to recreate in each of us. Uh, if we trust him. And then uh, with Melchizedek, we got a glimpse into uh, God's plan for priesthood after the fall. Again, just a a snippet there. But we see God's priest stepping into the story to reestablish peace and righteousness where it's been broken. And that's still God's heart today, isn't it? But now we're going to move into the part of the Bible, I guess, where priesthood comes out of the shadows finally, and uh, it becomes a full-blown institution. After God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, uh, you'll know he led them to Mount Sinai in the Arabian Peninsula, and he constituted them there as a nation. And he provided them with leadership, he provided them with law, uh, and he provided them with priests. Priests to serve him uh, in this tent that he commanded the Israelites to build and pitch in the heart of their camp as the place where God himself would dwell, the tabernacle. The first priest in this new hereditary line of priests is Aaron, uh, Moses' brother. And Aaron is going to be our point of focus today. Uh, Now, if you know your Bibles well, um, you'll know that unlike Adam and Melchizedek, there is literally tons of material uh, that we could go to uh, in search of Aaron's unique contribution to this story that's weaving its way through the Bible, right? Uh, um, Aaron is mentioned 348 times in the Old Testament. Takes a little while to read all those passages. Um, And the priesthood over which he stands dominates a large part of the book of Exodus, at least half of the book of Numbers, all of the book of Leviticus. uh, And that's not to mention the central role that it then goes on to play really in the whole of Israel's subsequent history. So Aaron is a really big deal. Uh, We could dive in uh, with God's description of the different sacrifices that Aaron and his descendants were called to make. Uh, We could look at the symbolism of his priestly garments. We could look at the story of Aaron's original ordination. Uh, We could look at his failures with the golden calf. Do you remember with his uh, rebellion against Moses, with Moses' uh, sister Miriam? Uh, But none of that would quite take us, I think, to the the core of what Aaron really stands for. So for this message, I thought we would uh, try to uh, quickly give an overview of the tasks of the priests that... uh, Uh, God set up their kind of general role, but then zoom in on the one duty that I think does really epitomize the whole thing, the annual ritual uh, in which the high priest entered the most holy place 
uh, and offered sacrifices for the sins of all of God's people. We call it the Day of Atonement. Uh, So that's where we're going today, but we're going to start with this quick overview of priestly responsibilities, and I hope that you'll find it helpful context for the rest. Um, So you ready for that? Overview mode. Um, And the good news is that uh, if you've been here for the first two sermons, you really have pretty much all of the pieces in in your hands already to understand what priesthood looked like under Aaron and his sons. From the first sermon, you might remember um, some of the tasks that Adam was called to fulfill in Eden. First of all, he had a governmental role. Do you remember that one? To rule over creation in God's name, to serve as a custodian of God's law. Uh, We'll move that thought forward, just a few Bible books, and you have the skeleton of some of Aaron's most important responsibilities. See, God spoke his law to Moses, and then he put it in the hands of Moses' brother to look after it. The priests were charged with keeping the law, with reading the law, with interpreting the law, and continually laying it out before God's people. So the priests are the people really with responsibility for ensuring that God's writ ran in Israel. Second thing, uh, you might remember that Adam was given a housekeeping role to work and take care of the Garden of Eden. And you might remember that those two Hebrew verbs, uh, to work and to take care, only ever get used in combination like that through the whole of the rest of the Old Testament uh, when the Bible is describing the work of Aaron and his sons. Here's a good example. Numbers 3. God says to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron the priest to assist him. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work uh, of the tabernacle. That's exactly the same thing that God said to Adam. The priests were there to take care of this sanctuary, keeping bread on the table, keeping the incense burning, keeping the lamps lit, doing the work required to maintain it. The, uh, the priesthood even had this kind of cracked department that was there for tearing the tabernacle down and then building it back up again when the thing was on the moon. Reminds me of Ken Modzelecki and his crew. We need to give those guys some priestly respect here. Uh, <laughs> Next, you might remember that um, Adam was given a worship-leading role. Uh, in that original creation. And that too was a huge part of the task that God uh, gave to his uh, priests under Aaron. Uh, 1 Chronicles 16 teaches us what shows us uh, David appointing Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to extol, to thank, to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. They were to play lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. It sounds like a kind of regular rock out, doesn't it? The priests performed musical compositions. The priests led call and response worship. The priests sang to God morning and evening, day after day, week after week, and year after year. And they didn't just play, they also wrote music. Asaph, who's mentioned here in this extract, just to break any prejudice any of you might have about drummers, um, he's mentioned as David's chief cymbal player, but he re- is composed 11 of the psalms that we have here in our uh, Bibles in our hands. Fantastic. And also we have um, uh, another priestly family, the sons of Korah, uh, composed another 11 of the psalms that we have in our Bibles in our hands. Um, so worship leading is an essential part of this priestly set of responsibilities. And then you might remember Adam is given this guarding role in Eden uh, to Uh, defend the purity of the garden against evil. Uh, And though that whole situation was drastically changed uh, by the fact that Adam actually failed and capitulated to evil, uh, this responsibility for protecting God's holiness remained an essential part of what priests were called to do 
as we go through the rest of the Old Testament. Priests uh, went through elaborate rituals just to cleanse themselves before going in to the presence of God. They were stationed at the entrance of the tabernacle as gatekeepers. Their job there was to kind of scrutinize the people of Israel as they came in, give them the, uh, the entrance exam, just to make sure that their lives and hearts were in a fit state to enter the presence of God. And then woven into the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tent, they had these cherubim with flaming swords, didn't they? Reminding them just what a serious business they were uh, engaged in. The way back into Eden was shut against unholy human beings and priests were there to keep it shut. And finally, you might remember that God also assigned Adam a representative role that he would stand for God before God's people, and that he would stand for God's people before God. And that's also an explicit part now of what these priests in the Old Testament uh, were called to do. Priests existed to make God and God's words tangible in the lives of God's people. They were to speak God's wisdom, they were to live it out, uh, so that people could see and grasp it for themselves. But also the priests existed to intercede before God on behalf of the people, uh, to plead with him that he would have mercy on them for the sake of his name. So all those facets of Adam's original calling, I hope you can see it right there now in uh, the priesthood as it gets established under Aaron. And that gives you an idea of what priesthood really looked like. Um, And just as we saw when we thought about Adam, uh, as we look at the priests, we're supposed to look at all these responsibilities and say, wow, that's what God would remake in us, uh, that he would have us be worship leaders, caretakers of his creation, that he would have us be uh, people who are um, concerned to represent God to others and to represent others to God and so on. But that wasn't all there was to it, uh, because the priesthood under Aaron was also priesthood after the fall, wasn't it? And after the fall, the priesthood acquired one new, extremely important additional duty. This is a duty that we saw already prefigured in Melchizedek last week, wasn't it? Melchizedek comes to Abraham after this kind of great battle of the kings there in Genesis, and he offers bread and wine. And looking at that from our privileged position as readers of the New Testament, uh, we can see somewhat what's going on, can't we? Melchizedek teaches us that after the fall the priest must also play the role of mediator, a kind of go-between, enabling unholy people to interact with a holy God. And the means by which that mediation gets made is sacrifice, and that leads us into the text that we have in front of us today. So we're going to stand now for the reading of God's word to um, turn with me to Leviticus 16. I'm going to read quite a substantial chunk of this partly because I want us just to kind of live in it for a while and really feel the, uh, the atmosphere of this text. We're going to read the first 25 verses of Leviticus 16. This is God's word to us this morning. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic 
With linen undergarments next to his body, he is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. And he's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord. And the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. And then he shall uh, sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And in this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. And then he shall come out to the altar that's before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. And he's to lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And then he'll send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. And then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he's to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area, And put on regular garments and then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. And he shall also burn the fat, the sin offering on the altar. Okay, let's take a seat. See what God has to say to us through this. (laughs) So I wonder what you made of that. I know many of us are familiar with the fact that these kinds of texts exist in the Old Testament, but I do just want to pause as we start here and appreciate just how alien this sounds and how alien this really is. 
This ritual that's described here was performed once a year, year after year, by a civilization that existed 3,500 years ago. And it sounds like it, doesn't it? We have priests here dressed in special ceremonial linen garments, slitting the throats of bulls and goats, walking into a tent filled with incense smoke and sprinkling blood here, there and everywhere. Uh, This isn't the kind of thing that's happening in 21st century Grand Rapids, is it? At least I sincerely hope not. (laughs) And it isn't just the goriness of the thing which uh, uh, we struggle to come to terms with, is it? Uh, It's the picture of God that these kinds of texts create. See, when I read this through for the first time, it just struck me that the God who's described here is profoundly dangerous. Did you pick that up? It reads like one of those news reports where rescue workers are sent into a collapsed mine or something, doesn't it? And you watch them going through the entrance uh, and you know there's a strong possibility that they're not going to come out alive again. It creates that same kind of tension in me that I remember um, watching news reports when uh, astronauts were getting strapped into the capsule of their spacecraft before the launch. You know the kind of thing? And in fact, that picture goes on paying dividends for us through to the end of the story. Because did you notice when Aaron does actually make it out of the tabernacle alive at the end, he then has to go through this elaborate re-entry procedure uh, where he takes off his special garments and washes himself from head to toe before he can come out and rejoin normal society. Uh, It reminds me of that whole thing with the first Apollo astronauts, you know, when they were quarantined for three weeks in like an Airstream caravan before they were allowed to uh, come out. Um, for fear that they'd brought back kind of harmful organisms from the surface of the moon. But the really chilling detail, of course, I think, is in the very first verse. Did you catch it? The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two eldest sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. Back up a few chapters with me and you'll see the context for that. Leviticus 8 shows us that after all the preparations for the establishment of the priesthood had been made, uh, We get the ordination of Aaron and his sons with meticulous care. Uh, Moses carries out the instructions that God has given him to set these men aside as priests. Uh, They're clothed, they're anointed with oil, they're marked on their ears, hands and feet with the blood of sacrificial animals. And then they're commanded to stay in the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven straight days without leaving uh, so that they will not die. And they did all of that and they survived. Chapter 9, uh, we find out what happens next. The newly anointed priests begin their ministry, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And after each phase of the action, the author repeats the variant of a, uh, a kind of uh, reused formula. They took the things that Moses commanded. They did what the Lord commanded. They made atonement as the Lord had commanded. They burned the sacrifice as the Lord commanded. They offered the sacrifice in the prescribed way. They presented the sacrifice as Moses commanded. They did all of that, and they survived. But then in chapter 10, straight after the events of chapter 9, in the very first verse, we read this. Aaron's eldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers and put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. And so fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. That's scary, isn't it? Just think about it. These guys have been so diligent, but at the very first slip, they're gone. 
They stepped outside the boundaries of what God had prescribed and there was no second chance. And that's the immediate background to our text. In Leviticus 16, Aaron stands before us now, going into the same tabernacle where this just happened to minister before the same God who just put his two eldest boys to death. And the writer wants us to feel that tension. He's not trying to gloss over it. The sons are mentioned right in the very first verse of our passage, aren't they? And actually, there's an allusion to them at the end as well. If you track on to verse 32, it speaks about uh, handing down the priestly responsibilities from father to son. Oh, oh dear. We all know who Aaron's successors should have been if they'd lived, don't we? But the eldest sons didn't make it past their first few days in the priesthood because of the intense and dangerous holiness of the God that they were called to serve. So what do we make of all this? For some of us, I think this is almost like the the dark secret of Christianity, isn't it? In our evangelism, this maybe isn't the place we choose to start. We start with Jesus because in our mind's eye, he's so approachable, so easy to relate to. You know, Jesus is the religious figure you could take home to meet your parents. But the holy God we meet in passages like this is not so sellable. Maybe we're tempted to think about him more like the embarrassing, tactless grandparent who only gets introduced when all the fundamentals of a relationship are really firmly established. We're tempted to see texts like this as descriptions of something wrong with God, aren't we? Something that needs to be excused. But as we get into the meat of our pre-series now, uh, it's vitally important for us to see that for the lie that it is. Is God's holiness really something that we need to be embarrassed about? Well, try thinking about it from a different angle. When we looked at Adam in the first sermon of our series, do you remember how we examined all the ingredients of his priestly role and what happened to them when he fell? We tried to ask ourselves honestly how well we do as representatives of God's government now. How well we do as uh, custodians, as housekeepers of his creation how well we do as worshippers as appreciators of his kindness how well we do as um, uh, people who are guarding uh, innocence and purity in the world how we do uh, as representatives both of God to our neighbors and of our neighbors to God and the answer that came back was pretty bad wasn't it That statistic that I quoted from the journal Nature struck me really hard as an illustration of the problem. Of course, uh, being housekeepers of creation is only one small part of our priestly responsibilities. We can look at all of those different responsibilities and see how badly we're missing it. But God did make us to be stewards of his creation, caring for it and nurturing it on his behalf. And so it is fairly striking to learn that biologists are telling us that human activity will likely cause the extinction of between 30 and 50% of all the species on the surface of this earth before the end of this century. Think how you would classify a fact like that if you were set it as a high school science project, you know, just take the emotion out of it. Your teacher gives you a Petri dish filled with a beautiful array of different microscopic life forms. And you're asked to document and comment on what happens when a new life form is added to the mix. So you get your little pipette and you squirt this new life form into the dish and you watch the biodiversity of your little uh, microscopic world collapse and half the species get wiped out. How would you describe the life form that was added in your report? 
Surely you would recognize it as a dangerous pathogen and you would treat it with extreme caution. You would separate it from uninfected forms of life and you would enforce extremely strict biosecurity whenever you dealt with it, right? Well, that's what's happening here in the world of our priests. The extremely scrupulous uh, guidance that God gives them uh, about contact with uh, his contact with humanity is not indicative of a problem with God. It's indicative of a problem with us. We are the pathogen. We're the problem. And everything that the priests do in the whole of the Bible story after this assumes that. God exercises extreme caution when he deals with us because we are extremely dangerous. And he's determined that the consequences of our decision to make ourselves God and throw his world into chaos should remain contained. You see, God is for goodness. God is for truth. God is for purity. God is for kindness. God is for justice. God is for selflessness. And he is not prepared just to sit back and watch those things be exterminated from his universe through contact with the poisonous reality that is the fallen human race. We fail to understand the dreadful, dangerous responsibility of ministering before God in the temple and the tabernacle because we fail to see how utterly toxic and corrupt we truly are. So it's in that context that the passage lays out the details of the ritual of atonement. And if you see yourself, even the slightest bit in that illustration that I just gave, I hope you'll see what an amazing idea it is that this passage contains. You see, in our Petri dish example, tell me honestly what you would do in the end with the life form that wipes all the others out. You would destroy it, wouldn't you? That's exactly what human beings have tried to do with life forms that threaten us. Life forms like the smallpox virus, for example, we understand instinctively that the right response is complete eradication. But that isn't God's response here, is it? The miraculous truth at the heart of the gospel is that even though God fully realizes the danger that we present to his creation, even though we've made a mockery of his government, even though we've taken our God-given capability to worship what's good and true and we've turned it to worshipping what's wrong and selfish, even though we're now a threat to purity and innocence more than we are a a source of worship to it, even though uh, his image is grossly distorted in us, he loves us. Even though all of that is true of every single one of us, he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. And in this text, we find one of the most profound proofs of that reality anywhere in the Bible. You see, when God looks into the petri dish of his creation and he sees the havoc that we're wreaking in it, he acts to rescue us from what we've chosen to become. God acts to disconnect us from the consequences of our actions. God acts to reopen the door to relationship with him that we have slammed shut. God acts to undo the damage and drain the poison. And the way that he does it is atonement. So let's think about atonement a bit now and see what we can learn about it from this chapter of the Bible. The ritual that God instituted for the Israelites here in Leviticus 16, I think captures the nature of atonement from at least five different angles. 
Uh, so we're going to look at each one of those in turn. The first angle that Leviticus 16 opens up on the nature of atonement is that atonement is a universal need. Now that presents, I think, a pretty radical contrast to everything that our hearts want to tell us. Perhaps some of us have got the courage to accept uh, what the Bible says about the toxicity of humanity in general, you know, maybe looked at from a distance. But I think most often we respond by blaming it on a guilty few, don't we? You know, the world would be fine if it wasn't for those people. Uh, the world would actually be fine if people were a lot more like me. But this takes, take, text takes the holiest people in Israelite society, even the people who were the most bought into God's whole program, the priests themselves, and it draws special attention to the fact that they need atonement making for them too. Did you see it in the first part of the text as we read it? Aaron begins the process of making atonement by sacrificing a bull and a goat as sin offerings. The goat he offers for the sins of the people, but the bull he offers for himself. In fact, when you look at it, you can see Aaron's own personal need of atonement shot right through this entire chapter. Aaron has to bathe with water before he can even put on these sacred sacrificial garments. He has to complete the sacrifice of the bull before he could even touch the two goats. And just as the whole ritual for the people of Israel concludes with the presentation of a goat as a burnt offering, well, Aaron also has to present a goat as a burnt offering at the end for his own sin. The priest in the text then is just as much a part of the problem in God's eyes as the people are, isn't he? He needs his guilt transferring symbolically to an innocent animal just like the people do. Now, I wonder if we've really grasped the importance of that. There may well be some of us here this morning who believe, maybe not explicitly, you know, so you would write it down on an application form or something, but subconsciously, and most importantly, practically, that because we come from the right family, or because we went to the right school, or because somewhere deep inside us we feel confident that we're the nicest, most good-natured people on our street, uh, that we have no need of this. We know there's a problem out there for God to solve, but we're not part of it. Thank you very much. We're just looking forward to him cleaning up the mess. Sadly, though, the Bible that we have in front of us here disagrees with us. And we need to ask ourselves and take this pretty seriously whether our opinion or the Bible's opinion will hold more sway with God in the end. The Bible tells us that every single person in this room needs atonement. And if we don't see our need of it, the Bible tells us that's likely an indication of an exceptionally acute need rather than having no need at all. The second angle that Leviticus 16 opens up on the nature of atonement uh, is uh, by telling us that our need for atonement runs deep. Our need for atonement is so profound, in fact, that even the means that God provides to make atonement, the altar and the ark and the tabernacle itself, all need atonement making for them as well. That's a nasty idea, isn't it? God wants us to see that we aren't just contaminated, we're contagious. Our rejection of him, our determination to place the crown on our own heads and decide what's right and wrong for ourselves is such a grave issue that its consequences spill over into the physical environment that we live in. Leviticus tells us that just being in the Israelite camp was enough to defile the ark and the tabernacle and the altar. Uh, 
as an illustration of this, I, I'm taken back to the really heavy rains we had in the, uh, the spring, uh, where in our little uh, part of town, the local drainage system got overloaded and the whole thing decided to back up into our unfinished basement. Great. I'm sure uh, some others of you have experienced that situation in the past. It was pretty uh, unpleasant. Um, but the striking thing about it for me was the effect that it had on our perception of all of the stuff that we have down there. You see, it wasn't good enough that some nice guys on insurance came around and cleaned up the floor and drained all of the nasty stuff away. You see, um, everything that it had touched had to be dealt with. A lot of things had to just simply be thrown away. Uh, and things that were good to keep had to be bleached and bleached again and again. You know, Ruth and I set aside a special pair of boots each just for going down there. And then again, they had to be kind of slung. And that's the kind of picture that God wants to have in our mind here, isn't it? The priest has to make atonement for the holy of holies. And then for the tent. And then for, even for the altar outside the tent. All to make amends for the uncleanness of the Israelites. I wonder whether each of us has come to a point honestly inside uh, just yet in life where we're willing to own that as an accurate picture of our own situation. Because the Bible tells us that's how bad things really are. We may feel clean, but God tells us we're so dirty that even the things we touch are contaminated. The third angle that Leviticus 16 opens up on the nature of atonement takes us right now into the heart of the ceremony. And it shows us that atonement can only be made through the profound involvement of God. This piece of it, I guess, only really dawned on me when I started reading the passage really carefully, trying to observe the choreography of it all, you know, where Aaron moves and when in the, in the ceremony. Once the bull has been sacrificed, the text tells us that these two goats are brought forward and lots are drawn to see which one of them is going to fulfill which of the two functions that the ceremony requires. One gets held back to be the scapegoat, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then the other one is sacrificed on the altar uh, as an offering for the sins of the Israelite nation, uh, just like the bull is sacrificed for the sins of Aaron at the start. Now try to picture in your mind now uh, what the priest did with the blood of this goat. He takes a censer full of burning coals from the altar and he adds to it two handfuls of incense which immediately starts to produce this thick, uh, dark smoke. And then with a censer in one hand, and with a cup of the goat's blood in another, he steps behind the curtain, uh, through the, uh, the curtain with the woven cherubim on it, into the most holy place. Now, what's that all about? Well, it tells us back in verse 2, in verse 13 as well, um, that uh, following these instructions is a matter of life and death. Because in this ceremony, God warns Moses that he is actually going to appear Inside the Holy of Holies, God is going to be physically present in some sense. Uh, and if the priest sees him, he's going to die. So what we've got to imagine here is that Aaron is lighting up this smoking censer of incense so that when he goes into the most holy place, kind of holding it in front of him, he literally can't see a thing. Can't even see his own hands in front of his face to protect him from seeing God. Aaron has to inch his way forward, kind of reaching out for the ark and then he has to sprinkle the blood of this goat over the surface of the cover of the ark with his fingers seven times now I hope this isn't irreverent uh, but it helped me as I thought about this question to kind of turn it around and, and ask how did this experience feel to God you see in this ceremony God is present 
in a cloud between the cherubim over the lid of the ark. And without being able to see him, Aaron now kind of reaches out and sprinkles blood through this cloud onto the box. This is about as visceral for God as it could possibly get, isn't it? The blood that represents the payment of the price for all of Israel's sins is literally going through him in this ceremony that he has created. He feels the death of this goat. He kind of internalizes it. And that's what makes this sacrifice effective. The fourth angle that Leviticus 16 opens up on the nature of atonement is that atonement involves a radical separation of sinners from the consequences of their sin. In this part, uh, we come to the scapegoat finally, and that's such a well-known idea that it still kind of lives on in contemporary vocabulary, doesn't it? I saw uh, this just the other day with the whole revelation that Asaphah Powell and Tyson Gay had got um, booked for um, uh, taking uh, banned drugs. Tyson Gay at least said that he acknowledged his responsibility. He was going to take it like a man. Uh, But Asaphah Powell blamed his coach, and his coach blamed him and said, "Uh, Asaphah wants to make me the scapegoat. What does that mean? Well, this text is the place where we've got to go to find our definition because this is the, uh, the first place in history where this whole idea appears. And here's what it teaches. It teaches us that a scapegoat is an innocent victim that bears the guilt for somebody else's bad actions and then is driven away from them so that the guilt and the person who earned it are radically separated Now, stated like that, that maybe sounds a little bit crazy, a bit too good to be true. Uh, But God doesn't seem to have wanted any misunderstanding about uh, this idea. And so the ceremony that he creates kind of spells it out in words of one syllable. The scapegoat is uh, brought forward in verse 20. Aaron lays both his hands on its head and he confesses over it the sins of the Israelites. There's no room for guessing what his intention is. Verse 22 tells us he is putting the sins of Israel on the head of the goat, like a crown. And then the goat is sent away into the wilderness, uh, carrying the sins of Israel with it. The people and the consequences of their sins are, are totally divorced, never to interact again. Now, no human court would accept this, would they? No judge would accept the defense of a burglar who appeared before him one morning before his sentence was passed and declared that he had no case to answer um, because he had confessed his crime over the head of a passing goat and uh, it had carried all the consequences away. And I think the Israelites must have been smart enough to know that. There's no sense in which a goat is really equivalent to us, is there? doesn't undergo the same moral challenges as us, not subject to the same laws. There's no sense in which it can really stand for us or in which its innocence can be passed to us. It's a goat. But this is symbolism. And the symbol that we have in front of us here does tell us something true about the heart of God. In Psalm 103, David takes us right back here. Listen to this. He says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. 
In some mysterious way then, what we have acted out here in Leviticus is something that God can actually do in reality. God can remove our guilt from us as far as the east is from the west. God can detach us from the consequences of our bad choices and send those consequences off into the wilderness never to be seen again. I wonder whether you've ever allowed yourself to believe that that might actually be true. That there might be a way for you to be disconnected from the path that your past has committed you to. It's right here for us in this text. If only we can see where it's pointing. The fifth and final angle that Leviticus 16 opens up on the nature of atonement is that atonement is only achieved at the cost of the complete surrender of the offering. Now, we mustn't get confused here. There are three offerings made for the sins of the people in this passage. The goat that's sacrificed for sins, the scapegoat that's led off into the wilderness, and the burnt offering. Literally, a holocaust offering uh, in the original language. Uh, And that's what we're going to look at now. And we might say, well, you know, look at the scapegoat. You know, it goes off in the desert and lives happily ever after. Um, And the goat that's uh, offered for sins on the altar at the start isn't completely burned, at least straight away. So how can we draw any big conclusions from the fact that this last burnt offering is literally reduced to cinders? But here we've got to remember that the different parts of this ceremony all represent different facets of the, the whole truth about atonement. And uh, this final part of the ceremony uh, can't really be telling us anything else uh, than uh, uh, this striking fact, that atonement only comes at the cost of the complete destruction of the offering. There's no way back from reducing something to ashes on an altar, is there? The offering that's being made here is just laid down completely. And this uh, was the part of the whole process that God seems to have particularly wanted to stick in the minds of his people. Because most of what we've read about here is an annual ceremony. Uh, The priest only goes into the Holy of Holies sprinkling blood once a year. But Holocaust offerings uh, were presented every day. The Israelites lived this strange, kind of wonderful life, didn't they, with God's tent pitched in the middle of their camp, trying to obey and sometimes succeeding, but more often failing and needing atonement. And then the cost of that must have just been etched into their souls by this regular procedure, don't you think? The price of wiping out my sin is the complete destruction of another living thing. It's life for my life. It's innocence for my guilt. Atonement then has these five dimensions to it. It's a universal need. It's a need that runs deep. It requires God's involvement. It separates sinners from the consequences of their sin. And the cost of it is the complete surrender of the offering. But the thing I want us to uh, see for the purposes of our series now, uh, as we close, is that atonement, as we see it in Leviticus 16 here, also points forward, doesn't it? We're not intended to see these stations just as stations. We need to know where they're coming from and also where they're going to. We saw a hint of it, didn't we, when we looked at the scapegoat We realize that however profound that symbolism was, there's no way that a goat can really bear responsibility for my sin. The ceremony that we have acted out here can't actually be God's solution to the damage that I myself have done. There's no sense in which the remedy really balances the crime, is there? 
And the same thing jumps out in the concluding paragraphs of the chapter, uh, where we we read this little telling phrase repeatedly. uh, This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for the sins of the Israelites. You know, if you go to a doctor with, you know, a pain in your side or something, uh, it's a very difficult thing to be a different thing to be told that it can be cured with a simple course of antibiotics than it is to be told that you have chronic kidney failure and that you will need regular dialysis for the rest of your life. And the former is a solution to your problem, isn't it? The latter is merely management of your symptoms. And it's that latter situation that we find ourselves in here, isn't it? The text doesn't tell the Israelites that they can carry out some special ceremony and be freed decisively from the wreckage of it all. Game over. This text tells them that they are desperately sick and that they need to come back for moral dialysis year after year after year just to maintain their place in the presence of God. This text leaves them waiting for a solution because it certainly isn't a solution in itself. Well, the New Testament writers believed that they had found that solution. The New Testament writers believed that they had witnessed that solution. In the book of Romans, Paul returns to this idea of atonement. And if we know our text here in Leviticus, we find that he strikes some familiar notes. He begins like we did with the fall, with the tragic global consequences of our refusal to be what God has called us to be. Our hearts have hardened to the point where the intuition that we were made for something more than just mere consumption is now barely detectable, he says. There is no one righteous, writes Paul, not even one. Atonement is a universal need. Moreover, he tells us that our actions have consequences. We're contagious. Our presence in the world defiles the things that we touch. And creation itself cries out to be liberated from us. Liberated from its bondage to decay. The need for atonement runs deep. But then Paul introduces something new. Something that had been hoped for for so long by the time that he wrote that most Jews had actually given up believing it could ever happen. Paul tells us that the symbolism of Leviticus 16 had finally found its target. That the years of dialysis had been blown away in a moment of radical transformation. He writes this, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his own blood to be received by faith. The word that we have translated there, sacrifices of atonement, hilasterion in the Greek, is actually the same word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the cover of the ark itself. So do you see now what all that groping around in the dark and the smoke was in our text? The ark, uh, above the ark, once a year, the blood of the sin offering was sprinkled through the very heart of God. Because one day the blood that would actually destroy sin forever would flow out from the very heart of God. And in this way, God separated us from the just consequences of our actions. As far as the east is from the west, who now will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? writes Paul. We aren't just hoping now that some goat is going to somehow carry the can for our offences. Jesus 
a human being like you and me, called to obedience like us, tempted like us, stepped in to wear our debt like a crown, and the judge accepted his mediation. If we trust him, Jesus separates us from the just consequences of our actions, and nothing can separate us now from his love. But the cost of that atonement was oh so high. And we do well to remember it. Remember Nadab and Abihu? Wiped out because they walked unprotected into the presence of God? Jesus voluntarily accepted that fate on my behalf and on yours. Jesus surrendered himself entirely. It was too small a thing for him to merely be the priest. Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice. Perfect, spotless, with no sins of his own to pay for. He endured the Holocaust. Fire came out from the temple and consumed him so that we might go free. Let's pray. Lord God, I just know what a huge journey it was in my life to bring me to the point over many years of being willing to own myself as the person who's described in this text. So didn't want to believe that I was the mess that your word tells me that I am. And yet I acknowledge it. Because in that acknowledgement doesn't just lie freedom, or just doesn't just lie truth, but freedom. Lord God, thank you that out of this obscure, strange, visceral ritual came an expectation, a hope that makes sense of and interprets the greatest thing that was ever done. That Jesus died on the cross for our sin to separate us from it as far as the east is from the west, that it might no longer affect us, that all that we have done in our past might not determine our future because he made it all as if it had been his own so that everything that was truly his own might be ours. God, give us grace to accept that truth and live in the light of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.